What is going on, everyone? It's Mac and Carol. It's it's me. Back for another episode of Happy Sad Talk Thing. You know, the free-form conversation show centered around compelling individuals. Uh, the show sometimes gets personal. Sometimes we get philosophical. Sometimes we get silly. Sometimes we're very serious. Uh, yeah, but, you know, sometimes we're talking to artists. Sometimes we're talking to different creative people. Sometimes we're talking to community leaders. Sometimes we're talking to my dad. Just different people that I, uh, think have some cool thoughts and feelings that I want to explore with them. And, uh, this week I was lucky enough to talk to Joanna Hardy, who is a very important meditation teacher to me, um... And to many others. She's an inside meditation practitioner uh, in the Vipassana tradition. Uh, she founded the Meditation Coalition, um, which is a great uh, community here in Los Angeles of various meditation classes and uh, regular events that are hosted, uh, bringing Buddhism to the people. And she integrates Buddhism and activism in this really badass way. And she's someone whom I admire so greatly. And so it was really a treat to uh, sit down and talk with her about uh, Buddhism and how, how she lives her life and kind of what quests she's on right now. Um, we talk a little bit about some specific stuff that happened within the Against the Stream uh, former meditation society. Um for people that are more curious about uh, that situation, um, there are plenty of resources online. Um, but basically, we talk sort of about this one teacher for a moment um, who is no longer teaching uh, at Against the Stream and uh, sort of Joanna's role in navigating that uh, transition um, while this one teacher uh, who was called out for some problematic behavior um, was being removed from this position of power and was transitioning. Uh, the community was transitioning. Um, and so apologies if that it becomes exclusive at a certain point in the conversation. Um, but I do think it serves a larger conversation of that she points out too of just... Uh, following teachers in general, uh, you know, cultivating community. Um, yeah. And it was, it was a very, it was a specific event and it was important and, uh, she was kind enough to open up about it. And it was something that as someone who, uh, was a part of that community, uh, caused me, you know, and a lot of other people concern. And, uh, so it was really great to talk it out with her. Um, the specific, transpirings of this one Buddhist community in Los Angeles. But if you're curious about Buddhism in general, I think this is a cool episode. Um, Joanna is such an incredible teacher. She has a great way of uh, making things feel immediate and inclusive and accessible. Um, and it was just really fascinating to hang out with such an accomplished teacher, and get to know how she lives her life, how she spends her day, you know? Awesome, you guys. Let's get to the episode. Um, 
Also, <laughs> before this episode got recorded, all my all my shit got stolen, you guys, and I hadn't realized it yet. Um, it just wasn't in my car, and I had put it in my car the night before. Mistake. To go do this interview, um, and then we rescheduled, and so I just left it in my car, and uh, then all my shit got stolen. And I arrived at her house, and she was like, hey, you have all your stuff? And I had brought my mobile recording device, um, which is just this little uh, Zoom recorder thing. Um, and uh, I was like, yeah, like, I think maybe my stuff got stolen. And she was like, oh, no, <laughs> do you want to try to find it? And then I was like doing like find my iPhone stuff. And Anyways, so I was in a little bit of a an interesting headspace, but Joanna, of course, holds the emotional space uh, extremely well in this interview. And, uh, in that moment for me, <laughs> um, anyways, so it's been a wild couple of weeks, which is why I've been, uh, inconsistent in, in posting this podcast. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing okay. I had like my, basically like all my recording stuff, like my computer, microphones, audio interface, and an amp, blah, 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 a bunch of stuff got, uh, got taken, you know? And so it was a wild way to practice uh, self-care in, you know, filing police report and insurance claims and concrete things I could do to try to recover the stuff and uh, replace it. Um, And it definitely was like a big bummer, you know, Um, but also uh, an opportunity to like practice these ways of taking care of myself that I'm trying to practice more of and ultimately like i'm i'm getting back on track things are okay a lot of cool people in my life stepped up and are are helping me out um and are able to be there for me in this time so anyways i just thought that was a interesting behind the scenes little window into my mind so this is this is in the stage of grief of me losing all my shit uh some of my shit um this is the denial face. <laughs> it's my mindset before this interview. Um, but it doesn't come up in the interview because we're talking about Joanna. So without further ado, I present my conversation with Joanna Hardy! Happy sad talking. Happy sad talking. Happy sad talking. I don't know anything. I'm just happy inside and stuff. How's your day going? It's good. It's been a casual day. I got a hike in and I yeah. had lunch with a friend, a Dharma friend. Nice. Yeah. How do you usually start your days? Do you have a routine? Well, it, you know, I, I have been a mom for yeah. of kids in school, and this yeah. is my first year of not needing to wake up early, so I wake well, up a little later, which yeah. is 7. I wake up at 7 instead of 6, <laughs> or 5.30. Yeah, hardcore. Um, and I do my meditation, so I have a chanting and bowing practice that I do every morning. Mm. Um, it's a Kuan Yin chanting practice, Chinese Kuan Yin chanting practice. Mm. Um, How long have so you been doing that practice? That's been about to almost two years. Mm. And um, Kuan Yin is known as the sort of the 
the goddess of compassion, but the compassion of seeing the world at ease, right? So it's this way of, there's this fierce compassion that fights for and towards a world that could possibly be at ease. So that's yeah. Kuan Yin's job. Yeah. Heck yeah. Yeah. What brought you to that? Um, teachers that I met. So um, two of my teachers, I'm in a actually a two-year training with them. Um uh, Kitty Saro and Tanisara, mm-hmm. and they're kind of badass because they are. They were both monastics in the Chinese. I mean, in the Tibet, uh, in the Theravadan uh, Ajahn Chah lineage. Mm-hmm. So um, Kitty Saro lived with Ajahn Chah for fifteen years and was a monastic in Thailand there, and Tanisara um, was a monastic in um, England at Chithurst Monastery, and so and the two of them as monastics met and fell in love and then left the monastic life and got married Hell yeah. um, and moved to South Africa and they had a monastery in South Africa or a retreat center in South Africa for 23 years um, right pre-apartheid post-apartheid like right at the change mm. but anyway they're kind of these amazing teachers who have the hardcore Theravada um insight vipassana tradition under their belts but then they also have this really beautiful um more devotional ritualistic chanting bowing um kuan yin chinese practice Mm. um so they're an emergence of that but they're also hardcore activists so they are predominantly i would say around climate and and climate chaos and everything that's happening and obviously on this planet around that um but then also, you know, every other sort of injustice and marginalization and oppression. So they're this mm. kind of, for me right now, this perfect mixture right. of teachers. Yeah. Um, and part of my, t- part of the two-year training is that I do this practice every day. Yeah. Um, so I don't get to it every day. I try. Right. But um, that's a, a, how I start my day. Yeah. Um, I try to do it pre-coffee, pre-caffeine. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't always work out. But yeah, and that's about an hour. So I'll do the chanting and bowing and then I'll... I'll do my sit, I'll do my silent sit, um, mm. which is predominantly an Anapanasati practice, so breath practice. Okay. Um, and then I go about my day. Mm. Yeah. Is that your... did not happen today, but it happens <laughs> <laughs> often. Yeah. Yeah. Do you look at your phone when you wake up? Or do you wait until all of those... I always look at my phone when I wake up. Yeah. I mean, mostly, I have to say most of it is because I put it on airplane mode. Right. At night so I can sleep. And then, so I go into this, like, mom... You know, I have oh, older right. parents, For I sure. have kids, yeah. I have, and they're older kids, but, you know, it's like there's still that habit of, you check is in. everyone okay? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then, you know, see, every, I just see what kind of texts I had or yeah. any big emergency emails, and if nothing is important, then I, I put it down. Mm. But I do, I do as a habit, check my phone in the morning. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't go on, like, I don't check the news or do anything like that. Or First thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's whenever I, I do that, it's like my a, coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whenever I'm going to news or social media, it's always like yeah, crazy, games on. Yeah. crazy <laughs> way to start the day. Yeah, games on. Yeah. Um, that's so cool. How did you find those teachers? Did Did you find them? Did they find you? I found them through friends. You know, it's like word of mouth. <laughs> right. So yeah. certain friends of mine. I've been in the Dharma world a long time. So yeah. Certain friends of mine 
would go to their retreats. You know, they'd sit their retreats and they'd talk about Tinnisaran Kitasaro, Tinnisaran Kitasaro. And then yeah. I started reading stuff that they would write, you know, articles or blogs or books. Yeah. Because um, they're both writers. Um, yeah. I'd listen to their Dharma talks and then I started sitting their retreats and then um, decided to do this training with them. Wow. Yeah. That's it. No, I feel very, very fortunate. It's, yeah. It's a really beautiful thing. And the training is we meet three weeks out of the year. And so we have these mm. three very intensive. Um, I mean, they're retreats and that we're not involved in the world, but they're not silent. So there's a lot mm. of, there's a lot of interaction. There's a lot of teachings um, from right. them. They have a ton, yeah. I mean, the wealth of their experience is just kind of mind boggling. Mm. Um, and that we get to, there's 30 of us in the training. Mm. Um, we get to benefit from, you know, all that they've learned. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That makes so much sense with what I know about who you are and mm -hmm. the style of your teaching. And it, it's very involved in the community. And you have a family and you have relationships. And I've heard um, you talk about uh, like cultivating the community and like bringing Dharma to like people and mm -hmm. stuff. Um, and I think oftentimes it can be this sort of like heady solo exercise or this like I don't know some, I've heard some people sort of like talk about the monastic experience as like oh so you just like withdraw from society and mm -hmm. like is that the ultimate like is that the end of this path is that we yeah. like separate ourselves from everyone else and then we're able to be free or something yeah um, has that has it always been your approach um I don't mm -hmm. I think I feel there's a definitely a both and, you know, right, it's definitely, right. I, I feel like silent, reflective, solitary experience is important. Yeah. Um, and I feel like community and awakening to all, everything that's happening around us and, and what other people's experiences are and, you know, kind of like, can I walk a mile in their shoes type of thing. Right. So I think both is really important for awakening, you know. Right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. There are, you know, in, in, when we talk from a traditional perspective, the sort of the Theravada lineage is about individual awakening. Mm -hmm. The Arahant is an individual that awakens. Um, and when we talk about from the Mahayana lineage, you know, um, it's the Bodhisattva path, which is I will not awaken until all beings are awakened. Okay. So, um, so I like both. I like both ideas. Mm -hmm. um, I think the Theravadans are definitely now as we walk into a more modern world and, and less and less people are cloistering, you know, even mm -hmm. the monastics now like Bhikkhu Bodhi and Ayananda Bodhi and, and um, certain teachers that are monastics are very much involved in, in mm -hmm. global issues and um, issues of oppression and marginalization. Right. Um, so that's always really exciting and interesting to hear. And then there are the really necessary teachers that are really just teaching us how to be in each experience and watch the phenomenon of, you know, of life and the mind and um, minute by minute, minute experience. So yeah. both, both are important, Yeah. right? Because how right. can we engage with the world if we can't engage with what's going on internally and, and vice versa? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because there, there's such a disconnect or a bypass mm. if we don't have both going on simultaneously. Mm. Yeah. Are 
are the lines strict within the Buddhist community about like Theravadan versus like Mahayana? Right. I mean, not really. It just depends on who, who and what you're studying. You know. I mean. In some way, I am a purist, and I think it's important to really learn and know mm. um, very specific teachings um, so that you can know the difference, right? So that we can know the difference between right. another teaching. If we mush it all together all the time, then there's not a lot of clarity about what we're, what we're learning or how we're practicing or how we're growing. Right. Um, so I think it's really good to know, for people to know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes people will just sit and meditate and I don't even know if, <laughs> yeah. if people know what that means or how it's helping or what we're looking at or, right. um, you know, what's most beneficial. So, you know, every, t- every teacher is different, but as a teacher, I'm very specific around how I teach meditation, mm-hmm. right? So I don't only teach lifestyle or, um, or even serenity or tranquility or focus or anything like that. I very much teach um, to, to tools and to systems. And I like to see personally how phenomenon works. Um, mm-hmm. And I like to show students how phenomenon works. Yeah. And why we do what we do. You know, it's important to know. It's good yeah. to know. Yeah. At the intro level, I feel like just from... I mean, I'm, I'm uh, you know, a lay person, uh, but I feel like when I talk to people about meditation sometimes, mm-hmm. I feel like the most common thing I hear is like, oh, I can't do that. Yeah. My mind thinks too much. Yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah very, like, what is your sort of approach as a teacher? Yeah. Because I'm sure that comes up in Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's like, to me, like the biggest misnomer that there is, is that I can't right. meditate because I think. It's like, yeah, you think because you're human and that's totally, right. completely normal as you should. Like if you're not thinking, there's a problem, right? right. Yeah. And so what, how I always point it is not that you're, th- the thoughts are not the problem. It's our relationship to, to the thoughts that can be a problem, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes it's a really important and valuable. We have to think. I mean, you, you were a student, right? So as a student, you have to think. As a, if I, even if I go to the grocery store, I have to think. Like, I have to know what I'm doing. I have to know where I am. But when thoughts or thinking becomes um, non-productive or even causes us a lot of suffering is when we get really attached to the obsessive thinking, when we start to really believe past um, possible belief systems that don't serve us anymore, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe as a child in, in third grade, you had a teacher who told you you weren't smart or you had somebody who told you that um, you had no value or, you know, like we, we hear these negative messagings, you right. know, or, or maybe... Um, you know, we have a certain body type or a certain skin color or a, a gender that doesn't sort of relate clearly to the rest of the world or society. Mm-hmm. And so we get these messages that we're wrong somehow at age four, five, six, seven, eight. Right. And then that messaging becomes so habitual and conditioned that at 25, 26, 27, 28, we're still believing those, those old patterns. Mm. And so what the this sort of meditation practice or the mindfulness practice helps us do is it helps us to see clearly, oh, this is a pattern. I don't have to believe the pattern. What's happening right now? You know, what's actually happening right now? What's happening right now is I'm breathing. I can hear sounds. I can see. 
I can feel my feet on the ground. That's what's happening right now. And then as we continue to do that, we start untangling from our old belief systems, right? The belief systems that no longer serve us. Um, because so many of us can walk through a whole life still believing things that we learned as children. Right. Right? Like yeah. really damaging and, and hurtful things. Mm-hmm. Um, they're even finding that, it, you know, these sort of things are in our DNA epigenetically. And, right. You know, so how, do, how can I live, um, you know, if we're looking at living a happy, joyful, kind, free life, um, how do I do that if I'm still living in old habitual patterns? And at the same time, if I'm living in old habitual patterns, how can I see clearly what's actually happening in the world right now? Mm. Right? Because there's a lot of fucked up shit happening right, right. now. Yeah. But if I'm so worried about myself and my old patterns, I can't even see somebody else's suffering. Mm. Right? Because we tend to first, we go into survival mode. Survival mode is take care of me. And if we're constantly living in that space, mm. um, it's harder to see maybe what somebody else needs. Right. Yeah. How do you navigate, like, living with an open heart and not being just totally mm-hmm. floored all the time and yeah. overwhelmed by yeah. what's, yeah. like, all the suffering that's out there that is unnecessary? Yeah, no, it's a big, it's a big and important question. And, um, you know, in Buddhism, uh, we oftentimes talk about the two wings of the bird and its wisdom and compassion, and that without two wings, a bird, right, is in, out of balance. Mm-hmm. And so the compassion part is that part where we can very clearly see the suffering of the world. That's not pity. It's not martyrdom. It's not, you know, compassion is very strong. It's very balanced. Mm-hmm. Um, and then wisdom is is what tells the what helps the mind and the heart not get out of whack, right? It's what sort of keeps our equanimity going. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, there's a way that when we look at, when we look at suffering, like, you know, let's use, for example, um, you know, immigration right now. Right. And if I really dig in and see what is happening to children, see what's happening to families at the border, you know, people dying, people getting separated. So much pain. I mean, yeah. it's, it's huge. It's huge. Yeah. Right? If I let myself get too caught up in it, then I'm not as useful. Right. And so there's a part that has to, um, we call them sort of like guardians of the heart, right? So there, there's this way that we ha- we do need to protect our hearts so that we can move forward and do, do the work. Or right. else we will get floored. Right. You know, so it's not it's not saying that I don't see it and it's not there. Right. That's not what we're saying. Mm-hmm. But we're also saying, like, how can I be of the most service? And being of the most service means, okay, I'm seeing, I see it's here, and I need to stay strong and grounded. And mm-hmm. the staying strong and grounded is what our daily practice is for. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, staying strong and grounded means I can feel my breath. It goes back to what I was saying before. I can feel my feet on the ground. Where am I right now? Right. Right. Constantly. Like, that's what we go back to over and over again. Mm. And then from this space, I have a lot more clarity and a lot more wisdom and can move forward with, you know, it's easy to get angry and rageful and pissed off, right? Yeah. But that's also not helpful. Right. So taking that breath, feeling those feet, feeling this body, feeling this moment, now what? 
right. how, how can I clearly move forward? Mm. Um, but it takes work. You know, it's not yeah. the kind of thing where, and this is why I really encourage a daily practice. Mm. Because it's sort of like, you know, if you've ever gone to a gym or if you've ever played a sport or if you've ever played an instrument or if you've ever learned a new language or doing anything new, you know, the first few months we suck at it. The first few years we might suck at it. Right. And so, um, but that doesn't mean that we're going to stop learning, right? Mm. But it's the same with mindfulness. It's like we have to cultivate. The cultivation and the maintenance of it is what's going to keep us moving forward mm. in, a, in a really clear, balanced way. Yeah. Um, and so we can't just be like, oh, I meditated once, you know, for five minutes this week. What's wrong? Why am I suffering? Right. You know, it is a true cultivation practice. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have advice for, I'll just speak for myself. Yeah. I'm always falling in and out of a, of a practice. Yeah. You know, I'm always mm-hmm. coming back, like trying to recommit mm-hmm. and I'll have, I'll string some days together and then... I won't meditate for yeah. weeks, months, or something. Yeah. Um, and I like to think that there are like core things that I've taken away from like however long I've you know been like reading and talking and listening mm-hmm. and. Um, but I definitely know that I'm missing out on so much <laughs> because of the lack of this daily practice. Do you yeah. have advice on getting that together? <laughs> no, I mean yeah. it really is just you have to do it. Yeah, you know you just have to do it. Yeah, like I said, it's like like any of those other things. I mean, I had a, I had a piano sitting in the living room for a couple of years. Yeah, and I really sought fancied myself a. I wanted to learn how to play piano, right? Yeah. And I had the teacher come once a week, and that was great. And right. bought some books, leased the piano, and yeah. guess what? I never learned how to play the piano. Yeah. I didn't sit down and practice. Right. You know, every once in a while I thought it'd be fun. Yeah. But so it's it's the same. You know, it's like it's really um, you know obviously like anything priority. What what takes priority over that? Is there something that we do that is a waste of time? Yeah. Always. I yeah. Mean, know that. What stops us? You know, I always ask when I'm not practicing. I'm like, why why aren't I practicing? What is actually right. stopping me? Right. And it's really just laziness. Yeah. There's nothing big stopping me. Right. You know, it's not time. It's not like, oh, if I sit, I'm going to burn to death. It's not, right. you know, nothing bad's going to happen to me. It's really just being lazy and not yeah. wanting to. It's apathy. Right. So um, I think apathy is the greatest killer of our practice. Mm. Yeah. And we all know, you know, it's just like eating well. It's just like, you know, right. all of those things. Yeah. yeah. I should go for a walk instead of laying on the couch or whatever. It's, right. Um, and it's not to judge ourselves for it, but it's right. to be real about it. It's, you know, yeah. it's like, yeah, mm. we need to get real. Yeah. How did you come to Buddhism? What, mm. what brought you to it? And, and yeah. what, what made you want to pursue this path? Yeah. Um, I, so I grew up Catholic, so I was definitely, um, I was a 
a Jesus lover in like the true Jesus way, not a Bible lover, but right. a Jesus. Like I thought Jesus was fucking cool, yeah. and he Rabble. was a rebel. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and I and I actually really connected to and related to those teachings. Um, but I also was a misfit. So what I liked about Jesus. But anyway, I even as a young kid, I had a contemplative practice. I you know I loved sitting and kneeling and doing the rosary beads and which is sort of like a mantra in yeah, a way, right? Totally. Because you do these hundred and eight beads and. So I was really into, I was, I've always been into con- contemplation and an internal sort of practice. Yeah. Um, and then I moved into nothing, like nihilism for a long time. And then, um, then I was a Hindu, I practiced Hinduism for six years. Yeah. And so I got, I really got my meditation practice down and I would sit for about six hours a day. Hardcore. Um, for quite a few years, and then I moved it down to 90 minutes twice a day. Yeah. Um, and I did that for, for a long time. Um, Can I ask about the nihilism chapter? Yeah. <laughs> what brought you from nihilism to pain? Hinduism? Yeah, pain? yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, you know, just sadness and that sort of existential crisis of what else is there, and I know there's more. And I just kept having these visions of sitting around a fire with women and kind of just feeling the earth and and um, I was just tired. I was tired. Yeah, you know, I was just tired. Where were you at this time? Being in trouble here. I was here in LA. In LA. Yeah. Is that where you? Did you grow up here? Yeah. Too? Yeah. Or I grew up here. I moved to New York. I lived in New York for five years, and I lived in San Francisco for a few years, but then came back here. Um, yeah, so really just, it was that same old thing that I think most people are tired, nothing's working, all the old bad yeah. behaviors aren't working, and yeah. um, just being attracted to, you know, something else and studying and meditating. I was really attracted to meditating. I went to India for a month and kind of did a yeah. pilgrimage. And um, I had a, you know, great teacher from South and South L.A. So it was like this, you know, mostly back black community. Um, and we were just doing all kinds of cool things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we were doing pujas, we were doing sweat lodges, we were, like I said, pilgrimaging to India, we were having drumming circles, we were just doing all kinds of great mm. community. This was where I really was like, oh yeah, community and practice, community and practice, and we'd have food, and the kids were part of it, CJ yeah. and Harris were part of it, yeah. we all wore white, you know, every time we would go, and yeah. we did, you know, everything from growing vegetables and composting to, you know, so it was like mm. a whole, like, family. Yeah. And so we were involved in that for a while. And then I just kind of had that guru disillusionment because in those kind of practices, there is a belief in like this external um, deity that you pray to and like like holds the answers. And that, you know, it's kind of over there. It's not here. It's sort of like a God situation. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I had, you know, long stories, but I had some disillusionment story things happen and some, you know, some letdowns happen. Um, and I started, I just like bumped into Zet, some Zen, Charlotte Jobo Beck books, and, and then I bumped into one of Noah Levine's books. And yeah. but I was reading other stuff along the way and um, started practicing at the Zen Center here in Los Angeles and mm-hmm. just started going, oh, this is an interesting, really different perspective of it's not external, it's my actions, I am the heir to my own karma, you know. Yeah. Um, and this statement that the Buddha says, you know, ehipasiko, don't look at me, look look towards yourself. You know, what's, what, what are my actions, speech, and mind doing that are creating my reality? Mm. Um, 
so I've been practicing since 2006, you know, in, in the Buddhist tradition, mm. and mostly Theravada, Theravada yeah. stuff. Yeah, I've dabbled in other stuff. But yeah. Yeah. And when did teaching and being in a leadership position, when did that mm. occur to you as something that you wanted to do? Well, I was already doing that pre-Buddhism, so okay. I was working with, I had, like Sam was in it, we had our yeah. children's circle here, so we had about 30 kids coming every Friday for almost 10 years, Yeah. Um, and so I started sort of doing that was like teaching, and then schools started inviting me, so I was doing a lot of work in elementary schools, I started doing mm. this thing called councils, so I was working in rites of passage groups right. and foster care centers and high schools mm. and doing retreats and all this stuff with youth. I did a lot right. of youth work. And these were the teachings that you had brought from most of my Hindu practices. Hindu practices. Yeah. And we do fire ceremonies and we you know, there's still meditation involved. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I was already like we me and the kids used to go down to um, Deer Park, which is Thich Nhat Hans yeah. monastery. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we used to go down there a lot. So I was kind of was doing like the Hindu thing, but then there was also the Thich Nhat Hanh Buddhist aspect right. of our practice because I could take them and they were little. Right. Um so we would do like marches with Thich Nhat Hanh and you know I was doing all that with the young people yeah um, and then started working in the juvie halls and it was mostly word of yeah. mouth and people just started hearing about me and I started doing that work and then um, and then I met Noah and he entered, he asked me if I would come teach at um, yeah at his center yeah and so that's so this is place like against the stream had been established against the stream was just being established okay. so this we're talking 12 years ago cool yeah cool. and we just opened our doors and there was only one teacher it was noah so he needed other people to teach yeah um so he invited me to start teaching there mm. and i didn't really want to like i just didn't really want to but i yeah. did i felt like it was just part of my service and commitment to right. the Dharma. Yeah. Um, Did you have teachers of your own at that time? Um, yeah, I was. I had been sitting with Trudy Goodman. I've been sitting with Jack Cornfield. I've been sitting with um, Carol Wilson. Mm. Um, again, there were some teachers at the teachers at the Zen Center. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I was dabbling. I mean, I was still kind of had one foot in my with my um, teacher Srinatha Devi, who was my. Uh, more Hindu teacher so I was kind right. of going back and forth yeah. at that point and started sitting Buddhist retreats my first you know longer retreat was out in Joshua Tree with Jack Cornfield right um, and there was a whole you know whole teaching team yeah um, how formal yeah. are those like teaching programs like is it like alright in two years you're gonna oh which know? teaching programs are those I'm curious about like when oh. you're pursuing like in, in the Dharma world? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, those are not casual. It's not like a yoga teacher training. No, I mean, most of the, even like the, even, so let's say like someplace like Spirit Rock has something called a right. community Dharma leader. You have to have sat 200 nights of retreat mm -hmm. to apply. Right. And you have to have had a practice for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there, and that's like a, a more beginner level of training. The teacher right. trainings, it's like, you know, at least a thousand nights of retreat and many, many years of, of um, practice. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they take a lot of things into consideration that the Dharma is sort of your life. You can't be like a doctor, you know? Right. And it's your parts. Like, 
I do this on the side. It's really a lifetime commitment. It's yeah. Most, you know, it's our livelihood. It's right. It's everything we do. Most people, when they go into these four-year, the Spirit Rock and IMS teacher trainings are four years. Right. And most people that are in them give up everything. They don't, they don't have jobs. It's like, right. they're, they're sitting retreat and they're doing their training and they're sitting retreat and they're doing their training. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So it's a, the, because the, these bigger centers, and again, we're t- talking about a very small part of Buddhism. There's a lot more Buddhism right. than just yeah. Spirit Rock or IMS. Um, but how they do it, because that's what I'm aware of the most, is um, you need to be asked. You can't apply. You need to be asked into the trainings. Interesting. Um, it's an invitation, and it's because you have a relationship with a long-term relationship with a teacher. Okay. Um, so I had had a long-term relationship with Jack. Yeah. So he invited me into the training. Okay. Um, and, and my relationship was based on me sitting his retreats for many years and him knowing me and him knowing my practice. And, yeah. Um, and so it went from there. Yeah. Um, there are these, you know, mindfulness teacher trainings that are being offered now that you can do. Um, but they're not considered Dharma teacher trainings. They're more mm. secular mindfulness trainings. Right. Yeah. 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 I'm curious about um, like there are yeah there's so many different like flavors of eastern influenced philosophy or practices um, and as someone who pulls from different traditions um, like there are also all of these like pseudo spiritual branded things mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. where it gets mixed with commerce and becomes suspect or something yeah, yeah. Um, and as sort of like mindfulness like Expanse in popular culture yeah. can be like, I'm sure, a great thing, you know? But then there's like this insidious other side of it. Yeah. How has that been as a teacher um, yeah. when things get popularized and mm-hmm. potentially like misconstrued or taken down other paths? Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, I can only speak for myself personally. Yeah. As I Pretty big question. <laughs> well, no, no, no. But I mean, I have intentionally stayed away from the mindfulness movement. Okay. I teach Buddhism. Like that, I'm very Word. clear about. Um, yeah. There's a couple places that I teach, like 10% Happier, which is a phenomenal app. But they let me talk as a Buddhist teacher. Like I mm. don't have to secularize my teachings. Yeah. Um, but I've been invited to do a lot of secular stuff, and I just don't. I don't do it I'm yeah. not interested and there's plenty of people that do so yeah. they don't need me <laughs> for sure but um, I've made a very clear choice that um, I yeah. teach Buddhism yeah. yeah so so that's that makes it really easy for me mm. you know yeah um, I you know I, I'll still go into schools and I'll teach to parents and I'll do stuff like that but they right. all know that I'm a Buddhist yeah and I'm not gonna um, yeah, I'm not going to pretend that I'm not or try to change my languaging mm. um, because I really believe in the whole of the teachings, not right. just part of it. Yeah. And mindfulness really teaches to 
the, the secular mindfulness movement really just teaches to part of the practices. It does not teach to ethics. It does not teach mm. to the wisdom teachings. It does not mm. teach to um, the the heart practices, the Brahma Viharas. You know, it really teaches to one aspect, which is mindfulness. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot lost, and right. I don't even know how to teach without all those other things. Right. But, yeah. Right. So I, I make it pretty clear for myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like a, an, an idea that I don't even know too much about, mm-hmm. but as someone who, I, I was raised like loosely Catholic and like, you know, wrestled with it and, and left it and came back to it and like, ultimately, I don't feel like it's my path mm-hmm. and when I found like this flavor of Buddhism, uh, I was like, oh, this is, this is yeah. totally for me. Mm-hmm. Um, the karma and like reincarnation, mm-hmm. things that have to do with like other lifetimes, mm-hmm. um, I struggle with a lot. Um, what are your sort of understandings of like samsara? Yeah. Well, samsara really points to, like, this moment right now, like, Mm. this lifetime, right? And how each moment can create the next moment. Um, I don't teach reincarnation because it's not something I can... And and there's nowhere in the teachings that the Buddha ever says you have to believe something. Right. Always see for yourself. Always. Right. So... um, you know, I know some people that their teachers have taught it to them, so they teach it. Right. Um, and there's just, in the in certain suttas, it definitely points to different lifetimes. But then some yeah. teachers also teach that in terms of, or how I teach it, is it points to the many lifetimes within this lifetime. It points to the many lifetimes within each moment, because each moment we're birthing ourselves into the next moment. Mm. Every time, every thought you have, like this thought you're having right now, yeah. it's leading you into your next thought, which is leading you into your next moment. Like if you decide you're going to leave here tonight and you're like, I'm going to go have a burger and fries and a shake for dinner. Yeah. Or you're like, I'm going to go have a salad and kombucha for dinner, right? So just walking out the door, you have some choices. Right. Choice. What am I, what am I going to do next? And mm-hmm. I'm just using those as very like blatant decisions. For sure, yeah. So then you make those decisions, and then your next moment after the burger, fries, and shake, you might be like, oh, I feel disgusting, I need to go lay down. Okay, yeah, I'm going to go lay down, and I'm going to watch TV all night. You're going to eat the salad and the kombucha, and you're like, I feel great, I'm going to go for a walk, I'm going to go, you know, go do something productive my mind feels bright right and so like every decision we make creates our next reality it creates our next life it creates our next moment yeah right and then you're gonna and then you'll wake up in the morning and be like oh I wish I hadn't done that so I'm gonna go exercise so that's creating your next moment or whatever right I'm just using this as examples we do the same thing if we are in a conversation with somebody and we have we get in an argument and we can create the next moment of a lot of suffering for ourselves and the other person by saying something fucked up. Right. And then having to clean it up and then maybe even creating a schism in our relationship. Or we can be in a conver- in an argument with somebody and be really skillful and say, you know, maybe we should talk about this later. And right. I'm not really clear on what's going on right now, so let's have a conversation when I am more clear. And that's going to create your next moment. So the, we are right. birthing ourselves 
birthing ourselves into next moments over yeah. and over again. Yeah. And something's always dying, you know? So beginnings and endings and permanence, there's always a beginning and there's always an ending. And so that's a birth and a death. Mm. Um, so when I'm talking about karma, it's ta- I'm talking about um, cause and effect. I'm talking about causality. I'm talking about what happens based upon the moment before. Right. Um, and what we do with that moment. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's good enough. <laughs> um, man, there's so many. There's so many moments. Right, right. To so be many born. Moments. No, there are. <laughs> right, and it, and then it's like, so what moment am I strengthening? Am I strengthening right. these moments that feel really that make me feel bright and make my mind feel bright, or am I strengthening these moments where I feel sluggish and shitty and and not so good, right? Right. And so this is what's really interesting about, um, you know, as you call it samsara or dependent origination, you know, that wheel of that wheel of karma um, is how are we turning the wheel and when are we getting off the wheel? Right. Yeah. Do you feel like there's an element of faith that plays into the Buddhism that you practice? Yeah, yeah. Faith is, is a big part of the practice, but it's it's different than it's not blind faith. Right. Um, it's verified faith. Mm-hmm. Right. So blind faith is when someone tells you there is a God and you're going to go to hell if you commit these, you know, if you break these commandments and you know there's a faith that you're just supposed to believe because somebody told you you had to. That would be a blind faith, right? You're just doing it because you're told to, or that's what your tradition is, that's what your culture is, that's what your society tells you. In in our practice, it's verified faith where it's like, oh, I believe in it because I've tried it and it's true. Mm. Oh yeah, I don't cause harm with that with my speech. Interesting, my next moment is much easier. My mind is more settled, my heart's much more settled. Okay, that's pretty verifiable. Mm-hmm. I cause harm with my speech. I'm suffering. I don't cause harm with my speech. I'm not suffering. Right. That's pretty verified, right? Mm-hmm. So we get to see, we just get to see, like, oh, yeah, what happens if I really pay attention? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's really easy to blame, you know, like, if we're not paying attention, well, then we want to blame somebody else or we want to blame the system or whatever. Um, but we can always see that the places, you know, like how I kind of split the Four Noble Truths and Eightfold Path is what can I control and what can't I control. And so there are things we cannot control, you know, like old age, sickness, and death, going to happen to everybody. Right. It's a lot. Not in our jurisdiction, yeah. right? And if we spend a whole lot of time trying to control that, we're in trouble. But what can I control? My actions, my speech, <laughs> certain ways of thinking. Right? Like the the non-volitional thinking is one thing. Volitional thinking is another. Mm. So if I perpetuate, if I continue a certain, like, addictive thought or behavior or harmful thought or behavior, Mm -hmm. um, so that is in my jurisdiction, right? So if we pay attention to what we can control versus what we can't control, um, then we can get a lot more done. Right. And again, it's perpetuating the wheel of karma, Dhamma-chaka-pavatana in, in a certain direction. Yeah. Um, and then that's when life gets easeful. Right. And not everybody likes an easeful life. Yeah. You know, a lot of people <laughs> like drama. 
yeah. know, heightened states or, you know, like rapture and like these really, you know, big, bright states or these really low, heavy, intense states. Mm. Um, yeah. A lot of people don't even know what to do with ease and peace. It feels boring. Right. You know? Yeah. So then we go out and create some nonsense. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. There are definitely times where I'll be having some sort of internal peaceful time and I'll be like, who am I? Who yeah. am I to be having this nice time? <laughs> a lot of people are having bummer times. Right, like, right. And then I'm really just using it as an excuse to like, right. you know, go, go do something. Yeah, knock stuff off shelves yeah. or whatever. You know? yeah. Um, yeah. Is that something you've ever come across in your practice? Like, not allowing yourself mm. joy or peace? Uh, not so much. I don't think that that's one of my... Yeah, no, I enjoy some joy. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. it's good. I think it's a useful energy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Mm. Yeah. And, and that's like how you it. can show up as the most helpful. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Heck yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, and I don't want to, like, stray into gossip by any means, <laughs> um, but as someone, like, I... Noah is how I like got into this stuff, mm-hmm. you know? I was in a relationship and somebody gave me a book and it like made a lot of sense to me mm-hmm. and I started going to these like classes and uh, started going to some of your classes and hearing you speak and um, and then a couple of years ago there's this sort of these allegations and these statements that are coming out and a lot of people in the community, we're like confused and hurt, um, and uh, myself included. Um, and I was definitely, I was definitely reading like gossipy articles at the time, and I was like, mm-hmm. "This is weird." But um, obviously, there was, and please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, obviously, there was like an investigation. By Spirit Rock in the. Um, there was an investigation by Against the Stream. By Against the Stream. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, there's been a lot of controversy and like that uh, schism, and I read a lot of what um, the statements were from like from him about. Uh, feeling like betrayed by uh, other leaders Um, and there's like a lot of people he spoke about um, what I understand is like the what the Dharma teaches about uh, sexuality and like using sexual energy wisely Um, and like those really like helped me you know um, and so I think like finding out that, oh, maybe this, this person that brought me this teaching maybe hasn't done that. Right. It's like, it's part of all this like anger, you know? Um, and I'm sure navigating the community like at that time must have been like a really tricky thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
what was that time like for you? What were the conversations that you were having mm-hmm. with people in the community uh, trying to get through that and trying to like find a place for the community to, to continue, yeah. to have forward? Well, I mean, there's so many layers to it because um, just on a personal level, I was our, I had already been um, losing, I was already going to resign from Against the Stream mm-hmm. months before the allegations came out. For separate um, reasons or for? For reasons that I was very disillusioned with Noah. Okay. Right. And so this is one of the things I was going back to, you know, with the guru model of things, where I hear right. a lot of people saying, this is the person that brought this to me. Right. This is the... That's a guru model. No, he's teaching what the Buddha taught, right? He's teaching a teaching that's 2,600 years old. Right, You just right. happen to like the way he said it. Yes, right? totally. But it's the teachings that people fall in love with. and right. they, But they were so used to, in our mind, of God, the God sort of model yeah. that it, somebody gave it to us right. or somebody brought it to us that we're so conditioned um, that we place it on a person. Mm-hmm. And it's just major projection. You know, it's just like projection, projection, projection. Right. Um, he is Buddhism. Right. right. And it's like, well, he just happens to have a very unique way of translating it, um, which which is useful. Right. You know, which is useful for some people. And um, and that's a beautiful service. It's a beautiful thing that, that um, there was somebody that was able to do that with a lot of people. Right. You know? I it's problematic when people put so much on one teacher. Right. And part of the reason it's problematic and what happened with Against the Stream mm-hmm. is that Noah stopped listening to any advice, stopped listening to ways that we were trying to tell him like cool your jets, dude, like this isn't going well. You need to pull back. You need to, like, the power is getting too heavy. He was gambling a bunch. He was spending a lot of money that wasn't his to spend. Mm. He was um, using his power in places that were very um, manipulative. And, um, you know, so regardless of whether these sexual allegations, whether he raped somebody or not, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how that all went down, but do I know that he's a very intimidating and manipulative person that somebody could feel unsafe with? Absolutely. Because mm-hmm. he's, he's done that to non-people he's dating, you know, right. to yeah. people he works with, to men, women alike. Right. Right. So have I seen him be an intimidating person that can be unsafe? Absolutely. Um, so a big part of why us as the board and the teacher council, and I was no longer on the board or teacher council when they closed. Um, I had already resigned by then. Mm. But was because this wasn't a person that was listening to anybody. And it, it, there was no egalitarianism. There was no equity. Right. And it was his way or the highway. Right. <laughs> and even though he acts like he was giving power, um, the final say was his. The final word was his. Um, he and I had butted a lot. We were in a lot of fighting, and by the end, we weren't even talking. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think it's problematic when people place everything on one person. 
and that's where all of this dueling is happening and separation is happening right um, and schism is happening is because yeah. they're putting all of this stuff on Noah right you know all of their practice on Noah and it's it's actually quite um, it's sad and I always encourage people go listen to other teachers there's a lot of great teachers right. out there yeah, yeah, there's yeah. some really beautiful teachings and teachers yeah and it might not look exactly like like that right um, which personally I was growing out of you know it was sort right. of like okay that was fun when I was younger right um, but you know it's like I just I'm encouraging people to go hear teachers listen to teachers read other teachers right um, and and have your practice. It's the practice that we fall in love with. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um, and it was put in a really nice, beautiful bow um, at against the stream, but right. It's not here anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and it's because of the causes and conditions. It's the karma, and you know, it's like one thing leads to the next, one action leads to the next action, and it was a house of cards. Right. You know, it was a house of cards, and it was. Um, yeah, it mm. fell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, are there situations where you still interact with him? No, on certain boards or anything. No, zero. Yeah. No. Because I know that he's he studied with with Jack Winfield as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Noah grew up in the Buddhist world. Buddhist world. Stephen Levine, his dad, mm. um, was a Buddhist teacher. Um, so he grew up with Ram Das and Jack and you know a lot of those a lot of those teachers right um, his whole life since he was a little kid yeah so um, Jack's one of his teachers I you know I don't actually know he's not a practitioner Noah's not a practitioner he doesn't sit retreats he doesn't trust teachers so he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't really I don't really know who his teachers are I mean he says all John Amaro is but I don't know you know, he might have sat a few days with him, but um, he doesn't really practice or study with anybody. Interesting. Yeah. I know. And that's a problem, too. Right. Yeah. Um, anyways, thank yeah. you We for need to be accountable to somebody. Right. <laughs> I, think that's in, I think that's important. Yeah. Um, and I just appreciate you talking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's cool that the tradition and the, and the spaces that I've encountered like allow for that uh, yeah. accountability um, yeah it's really important yeah um, so I'm curious about is this kind of where the idea for Meditation Coalition mm-hmm. uh, came out of I've heard you talk about uh, creating a circular structure yeah of, like peer to peer yeah uh, well, I've just watched so many communities flounder under founder syndrome, you know, right. under hierarchy, under, um, yeah, non-equal sort of rule. And so right. our plan, you know, we're hoping to create a structure, and I think it's working so far, yeah. whether it's these classes all over L.A., and, you know, the facilitators or the teachers get their own space, the spaces there's a few rules. It's like it need they need to be accessible, so all bodies need to be able to access the room. Right. Um, 
the they're Buddhist, um, so it's not like we're getting into like nonviolent communication or like we would do we would do those topics with Buddhism or right. you know other things with yeah. Buddhism. Um, but we've had a lot of people approach us that want to bring in other alternative type stuff. But we're we're you know pretty clear we're teaching Theravada Buddhism, access and inclusivity for everybody. And then um, that there's a social justice aspect to it, that all the facilitators right. and teachers that are teaching our groups um, know how to be inclusive and know the languaging and are trauma-informed and yeah. are pretty um, able to hold a space. You know? Yeah. So um, I think we have something like 15 weekly classes and then... Um, you know, then the monthly classes and, you know, we have LGBT IQA group and we have POC group, we have the women's POC group, we have multiple, um, you know, Dharma Sutta groups, um, my POC ally group, um, you know, we have stuff on the west side, stuff on the east side, so it's, yeah. you know, it's just kind of, we're feeling it out and it's, and it's tricky because people, it's interesting, um, Every time we throw it out there, the question comes back, well, what do I do? And how do I do it? And it's like, <laughs> right. wait, this is what we're breaking. You know, we're breaking that hierarchical, patriarchal mold of, right. you know, empowering the facilitators, empowering the person who's leading the group. Right. And, you know, what do you want to do and how do you want to do it? Um, but that, but it makes it hard, right? Because you have to rent a space, you have to get flyers made, you have to, you yeah. know, like it really does. Yeah, yeah, it really does. But you know, in my mind, um, there's a lot of freedom in that because then I, I don't know. And when I say the man, I don't mean man as in gender, but I mean as in the power structure. Right. Um, you know, if we go asking for free spaces, usually we're beholden to somebody, you know? And when I say asking for free spaces, I mean teaching at places maybe that have a structure in place or already have something going. It's like, okay, so what are you giving up to do that? What are you giving up to be in somebody else's space? Right. And so it's like, no, can we, can we maybe do a little extra work so that we're then you know, independent and showing other people how to be independent in their practice. Because ultimately, we're wanting to, you know, all be in practice together. Right. Um, so I find that really interesting. Um, I don't think it's easy. I don't, um, we're going to fumble, you know. Yeah. Um, we're going to misunderstand, you know, the first six to nine months, there was a lot of misunderstanding with the groups. and But I think we've gotten into a rhythm now and, um you know, and we'll see. We just got our 501c3, which is exciting. And What's so we're that? putting our, um, our nonprofit status. Cool. Yeah, cool, cool. so that means we can actually, like, have money, you know. And, right. And, uh, and, and as of right now, all those groups that are autonomous, all they get all their money. It's not like the money comes to – there's no meditation coalition pot. Right, yeah. Um, but if, if meditation coalition starts earning money, the great thing is we can then pay for the spaces that all those groups are having. Right. So that the facilitators can then get the Donna, you know. Right. Um, yeah. But the point is not for us to gen start generating a bunch of money. The point is just to keep groups going and to help, you know, make that smoother. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So... We'll see. So far, so good. Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. And part of it, you know, part of it is I don't really want a big leadership 
position, you know, yeah. I, I want to teach, you yeah. know, and I like teaching and I want to teach. And, yeah. Um, we were talking a bit as I came in, mm-hmm. um, we were just talking about yeah. podcasts in general. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, if you ever wanted to start a podcast, yeah. that's how you could do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were like, I don't want to no. do that. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to do that. What, uh, what excites you like as a teacher like what is the work that you're the most interested in doing right now yeah um right now I really like to um collaborate right so I'd like to collaborate with other teachers other um leaders other um activists organizers and and kind of work with them and I bring the Buddhist spin in and they kind of talk about what they're good at talking about so whether it's climate whether it's social justice, racial justice gender justice, immigration you know whatever we're talking about um, I'm really it, it excites me to work with people that are in those fields yeah. and then bring a Dharma spin to it right? Um, and be in dialogue with them and yeah. sort of seeing how we can yeah facilitate mm. together yeah yeah how buddhism can fit within activism yeah yeah for mm. sure and how it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning where you know we still need to continually keep coming back here to this space to rejuvenate to find a ground to settle to find ease to let the minds you know to have a break to let the nervous system have a break if we don't do that we're screwed you know right. so and a lot of activists don't do that it's right. just like on constant, and then there's the, you know, we, we call it, you know, um, compassion fatigue or whatever kind right. of burnout there is. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, going back to the Theravada Buddhism, a lot of the Theravada Buddhists aren't activists. It's like <laughs> personal awakening, right? So right. merging the two and, um, yeah, I, I always want to be a learner. I always want to learn something. So I feel like if I get to teach with people that I respect and admire and I can learn from. Right. Um, that's exciting to me. Yeah. Yeah, so I like being on teaching teams with people that know more than me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's super exciting. Yeah, it is. I like it. How do you reconcile, because you're a mother, you've got this coalition. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a lot of things that require planning I and thinking ahead, mm-hmm. traveling. Mm-hmm. How do you reconcile all of that with present time awareness mm-hmm. and not not living in the yeah. future too yeah. much? Well, I really, my, my calendar is like, <laughs> I have a very tight calendar. Yeah. Um, and then when I'm not calendared, I go on hikes and I walk my dogs and I meditate and I spend time with my husband and hang out with my kids and, you know, enjoy being home and I have good friends and, you know, I just really let myself um, do the things I enjoy. Like we just went to the Colorado River and went boating yeah. and swimming and that was so fun. And Incredible. We have a grandson. Andre has a grandson, but you know, and so spent time with him and yeah, you know, just do the things that really um, matter in between and mm. and you know do the work. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Where can people follow your work? Um, I have a website, so it's joannahardy.org, and so my schedule's there, and then meditationcoalition.org, um, which is you know all our LA-based um, yeah. stuff. Of course. Yeah. Thank you so much for this time. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for taking me. Happy Saturday. Happy Saturday. Happy Saturday. Happy Saturday.